Okay. Okay, we're in Exodus today. And as I've been studying these Old Testament books, I'm just seeing the thread that's running through all of the scriptures and uh, known as the historical redemptive narrative. And that's just how God is redeeming a people for himself according to his sovereign plan. So nothing happens by chance. And everything is pointed towards this goal. Everything that, that, is, that God does is all pointed towards the work that Jesus does on the cross on our behalf. So by way of review, if you think back towards Genesis, God created a people for his own glory. Then he placed them in a beautiful land so that they could walk with him in fellowship. But man sinned and broke that fellowship and then was cast out of that perfect land. And then as soon as man sinned, God immediately put his plan into action to redeem us. And then he makes promises to Abraham so that ultimately he can reverse the effects of the fall. So all of these books challenge the idea that God is passive. God doesn't just let things happen randomly, and he's not some superpower that's there to improve our lives if we decide to make use of him. Everything that God does after the fall is designed to culminate in the sacrifice of Jesus for us. So when he gives a son to a couple who is well past the childbearing age, that's not random. That's the bloodline for the Messiah. And when he shows grace to Rachel and gives her two sons, even though she'd been barren, that's a wonderful gift for her, but it's really more than that because Joseph was part of the bloodline for the Messiah. And then later, when God uses Joseph to spare his family from starvation and the famine, that's not random again. He needs that bloodline because from that will come the Messiah. So everything's about Jesus. And that, the Bible is God's rescue plan. It's not even about our salvation. It's all about the Savior. So the Old Testament is beginning with how God made the world perfect, how man sinned, which marred that perfection, and then the rest of the story is God's rescue plan to set things right again. So now that brings us to Exodus. So now Exodus is a Greek word, ex meaning exit, otis meaning highway. So you can think of Exodus as meaning the way out. Exodus begins with Israel's bondage in Egypt, and it ends with Israel's freedom on the way to Mount Sinai. The whole book spans about 400 years, but most of that time is while they're in bondage in Egypt. And if you think back to Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, my people will be in bondage for 400 years. And that's exactly what happened. So the book further reveals God's redemption and then the covenant relationship that he has with Israel. The theme of Exodus is Exodus 19.4. So let's look at Exodus 19.4. That's really the whole theme of the book. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You can look at Exodus in two parts, just like we looked at, at Genesis in two segments. The first part is from chapter 1 through chapter 18, verse 27, and that part has to do with redemption. That's the redemption of Egypt through the plagues, the redemption from death through the Passover, the redemption from destruction through the Red Sea, and the redemption from the wilderness through God's provision. Then part two from verse, uh, chapter 19 through the end of the book is the focus on the relationship with the Lord through the establishment of the Old Covenant. So first, God establishes the covenant in the form of the Ten Commandments. You may have heard this called the Decalogue. 
Then the people rebel against it by breaking the very first one. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And they create the golden calf. And this is um, just an affront to God, of course. Um, and then they make the tabernacle. God gives them very specific instructions for how to build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a very critical part of how the people were going to relate to God. And the ultimate goal was, of course, fellowship with God. Now, in your handouts, there's a, uh, a handout on the tabernacle. goes into all the specifics. But each part of the tabernacle points to Jesus. And uh, for just by way of a few examples, um, the altar for sacrifice pointed towards the ultimate sacrifice that Christ would make. The basin for washing represents the cleansing from sin. The table of bread of the presence anticipates Christ as the bread of life and was the visible presence of God who gives and sustains life. The lampstand signifies the one who would come as light of the world. The altar of incense, where incense was burned daily, and atonement was made annually for the sins of the people, is fulfilled in the atoning sacrifice of Christ, who's always interceding for us. So these are just a few ways. We could do a whole study on the tabernacle. <laughs> so the theme um, that God works sovereignly through his people, we talked about extensively through Genesis, and then we see this continuing on through Exodus. Um, God is obviously sovereign in the life of Moses and in Pharaoh. Um, in chapter 1, that's covering the centuries during which time the Hebrew people were in bondage. Then in chapter 2, chapter 2 covers 80 years of Moses' life. So that's Moses was born, he became a man in the palace, and then he lived his, his life in the desert in Midian where he had a wife and children and lived as a shepherd. Then the rest of the book, chapters 3 through 40, covers only a little over a year of time. And that was really the main emphasis of the book. And that's how God used Moses to bring his people out of bondage, establish the old covenant, and built the tabernacle so he could have relationship with his people. Then at the end of Genesis, Joseph died, and they buried his bones in Egypt. And the Israelites had become very great in number, and that was a great threat to the Egyptians. They were afraid. So the Egyptian king at the time decided to use them as cheap labor and uh, as slaves. So... Um, still feeling threatened, the king decided to kill all the male babies. But again, God had a plan, and nothing throws God off his plan. So Moses was allowed to be protected, and Mark Dever, as I uh, you noted him as one of your references in, in your um, resources, he calls this an ark of papyrus coated with tar. So I thought that was an interesting um, analogy, that he allowed Moses then to be rescued and raised by Pharaoh's daughter. So interestingly enough, everything we know about the first 80 years of Moses' life is in chapter 2 of Exodus. Then the second half of Exodus 2, um, Moses became a murderer. He saw an Israelite being mistreated, so he took justice into his own hands and killed the Egyptian, which then caused him to flee into the desert for 40 years. That's where he married and had children. So at 80 years old, you would think that's the end of the story, but that was just the beginning for Moses. So in chapters 3 and 4, God called Moses in the burning bush and then used him, of course, to lead his people. So all of that was very specific, very um, pointed by God. Then Pharaoh, uh, the sovereignty of God in Pharaoh's life. Um, God used Pharaoh um, through a series of ten plagues, specifically designed to show that he was more powerful than any of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. 
And then, of course, in the dramatic exit through the Red Sea, God allowed the, the Israelites to pass through on dry land and then allowed the waters to flow back over the Egyptian army. So God was working sovereignly in Pharaoh. He told Pharaoh through Moses, I have raised you up. Then he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And this was the part that I think is hard for us to really grasp. So I, I searched through this, and in some places, the verses say that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Some verses say that Pharaoh's heart was hard. Some say Pharaoh's heart became hard. Some places say Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But Pharaoh was still responsible. So look at chapter 9, starting in verse 33. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. And then in chapter 10, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them, that I may tell your children, and that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So it was all three. All three are true at the same time. God hardened his heart. Pharaoh was responsible, hardened his own heart, and so he did sin in that. So it's a, it's a hard thing to really comprehend, the sovereignty of God combined with the responsibility and free will of man. The scripture teaches that both are true at the same time. I can't say that I understand that, but I do believe that both are true at the same time. So what can we conclude from that? God is, pa is not passive, but he's actively orchestrating events to bring about his intended outcome. Circumstances do not determine God's plan. God's plan determines circumstances. And, and just looking at the Bible from beginning to end, why else would God give a baby to a barren older couple? Why else would God put on skin and die on a cross? God does not deal in things that are likely. This is the way he works things. We don't understand it. This is, he's God. <laughs> so, God is working sovereignly to save a special people, and he's distinguishing this special people from the Egyptians. So if you notice, the plagues did not visit the Hebrew people. Look at chapter 8, verse 22. This was the plague of flies. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live, so no swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. Not, not random at all. Uh, also, look at the livestock in chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. 
And then chapter 9, verse 26. This was the hail, plague of hail. Verse 26. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. And then notice the tenth and final plague. Um, look at chapter 11, verse 7. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between e Egypt and Israel. And, of course, that's the Passover. God used the Passover lamb to um, allow the Israelites to escape the death uh, in the final plague. So, and that, of course, points to Jesus as our Passover lamb. So he's distinguishing his people from the rest of the world in, in multiple ways. He's giving them his law and his covenant, and that, of course, is the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and then other statutes to follow that. And these are all designed to reflect God's character and they're caused to cause the people to live differently from the world around them where other people do not naturally reflect his character. So they're not supposed to worship idols like the people around them do. They're supposed to treat their servants care carefully. They're supposed to ensure that justice is done, to respect property. He, God wants his people to look like him. And this is not the way that the normal, pe normal people around them lived but they're not to be normal people. They're to be God's special people set apart for him. And so that's why they were to have weekly Sabbath days and special festivals to remind them about who God is and what he did for them. They were called to holy obedience, and God still calls us to this today. They're being called to visible holiness so that as they obey his laws, they'll be distinct from the other people to reflect his character. So that was why the incident with the golden calf was such an affront to God. So in chapter 32, verse 10, God said, Leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation, he said to Moses. So that was like saying to one of us, That church you're involved with is just too sinful. I'm going to abolish them and I'll make a new people from you. <laughs> but of course, Moses was humble and he reminded God of what he had promised. And it, it was like Moses was finally understanding what God was trying to do. His mind was becoming the mind of, well, not saying he had the mind of God, but he was understanding God's will, and the things that Moses wanted were the things that God wanted. So he had become that close to God. And he even offered himself as punishment. He said, told God, blot me out of your book rather than punish the people. So God again showed mercy. Again, it was all part of the grand plan. And one of the biggest ways that God distinguishes his people from the rest of the world was that he gives them his presence and gives us his presence to be with them. So first, he gave the pillar of fire and the cloud as they traveled, and then he gave his presence in the tabernacle, and of course, ultimately, he gave, gives his presence in Jesus. So the people recognize that they can't go on without God's presence, and they even say, if you don't go with us, we don't send us. So look in chapter 33 of Exodus, verse 15 and 16. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? So that's the very heart of what it means to be God's people, to be holy and to be special. 
Their holiness is a reflection of God's presence with them. So the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the place where God's presence would dwell with them. So God gave very specific instructions for how to build the tabernacle. And that would be the place where sacrifices would be offered for the sins of the people. It would be carefully constructed, carefully maintained, and it would be served by specific individuals that were set apart. And only certain people could enter specific places in the temple. Everything had very distinct and uh, specially appointed rules as it pertained to the tabernacle. All of this pointing towards Jesus. So just like the Israelites, we're called to be separate and distinct and in order to reflect God's character. And we do that today by being willing to give of ourselves, by loving our enemies, by having care and concern for other people. So we are called to the same kind of holiness that the Israelites were called to. So God's clearly at work here, working out his plan for redemption. He freed the Israelites from physical slavery, and he's re rescuing the bloodline for the Messiah. And, of course, it's all pointing towards that spiritual rescue for us through Jesus. And all of the promises made in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the, in the Savior, in the New Testament. So in Exodus, God's providing the Passover lamb's blood to spare the Israelites from the tenth and final plague in Egypt, which was the death of the oldest son. And Jesus is our substitutionary sacrifice to spare us from spiritual death. But Exodus also shows us that God does not do all this for humanity's sake. Humans are not the purpose of creation. God's glory is the purpose of creation. So as he told Moses, I am who I am. So I want to read you something, and this was shared at the Gospel Coalition Conference. This is a transcript from a U.S. Navy ship with the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. This radio conversation was released by the Chief of Naval Operations on 10-10-95. Americans, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I say again, you divert your course. Americans, this is the aircraft carrier, USS Abraham Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> now, um, supposedly that's an urban legend that that never really happened. <laughs> However, it makes an outstanding illustration because God is the great I am. He is immovable. He is unchanging. If you want to oppose him, it's your call. And he says that to the, the Israelites, he says that to us today. So, I gave out some Bible verses. Who has Exodus 6, verse 7? Yes. Who has Exodus 9, 13 through 16? Exodus 9, 29. Moses replied, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. 
Exodus 10, 1 through 2. Exodus 14, 4. Exodus 14, 13. Exodus fourteen seventeen. And I behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his hosts, upon his chariots, and upon his horses. Exodus fourteen thirty one. Exodus fifteen, eleven through sixteen. And the last one, Exodus eighteen, verses eight through eleven A. Thank you. So that's the message of Exodus, that the Lord Yahweh is greater than all other gods, and he's worked sovereignly to save a special people for himself so that we would behold his greatness. It's all about his glory, and we are still doing this today. So Jesus, our Passover lamb, when he died on the cross, that curtain in the tabernacle was torn in two from top to bottom, which means we now have direct access to God through Christ. And we no longer need a high priest to follow God or to get to reach God because Jesus is our high priest. So these are the promises made in the Old Testament to spare us from death, spiritually speaking, to dwell among us and to forgive our sins. So we have so much to be thankful for and much reason to give him glory. So let's pray. Father, when we think about ourselves, we know that there's no other reason you would want to save us apart from your own glory. We know that there's nothing special about us other than the fact that you made us and have declared us to be yours. Father, a love that pursues us and that has sacrificed for us has caused us to respond in awe and in praise. Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in each of our hearts so that everything about us would shout for your glory in Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. Amen.